Welcome to the Confession Box. This is Gary O'Sullivan uh, in the hot seat this week with uh, a, a well-known guest of ours now, uh, Mr. Michael Kelly, the editor of The Irish Catholic. Glad you could join us on the hottest day of the year, Michael. Always a pleasure, Gary, even in this heat. Yeah, we're, we're brave to be doing this. This is a public service. Uh, we've got weather warnings today and possibly a hosepipe ban. And we've got to conserve our drinking water in case we run out. Exactly. I intended this country. <laughs> Couldn't make it up. <laughs> Uh, Michael, we're going to get stuck in. Um, uh, there's a lot of American uh, themes in this week's program uh, because we uh, we we had like was it thirty thousand or forty thousand Americans came over for, from Notre Dame. Forty thousand Americans. Put it like this: the largest movement of Americans since World War II. Can you believe it? Forty thousand Americans coming to one city for the college football game in the University of Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish against the the U.S. Navy Academy. So, I mean, to put that in context, college football is hugely popular in the U.S., but it rarely comes out of uh, it rarely comes out of the states. This year, Notre Dame had the home game. The first game of the college football season is always Notre Dame against the Navy, and that goes back to World War II. Because World War II, there were so many Notre Dame graduates were being drafted into the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy actually decided to set up an ancillary Navy college at Notre Dame. So the relationship goes right back there. So they're always the first game. This year was a home game for the University of Notre Dame. So Father John Jenkins. In Croke Park, wasn't it? In the Aviva Stadium. In the Aviva Stadium. So Father John Jenkins was really very, very keen. Who's that the president. Who's the president of Notre Dame that the game come home to Dublin. And I say home there. And I don't mean that in any ironic way. I can tell you, I was in Dublin during those days and there were banners all over the place. It was, you know, the Irish are coming home. Actually, the city council got fully involved in the whole thing. They renamed Dame Street, Notre Dame Street. And that was hugely important because on game day, on the Saturday itself, there was mass up in Dublin Castle. Can you imagine eight and a half thousand people gathered in the two courtyards of Dublin Castle, once the seat of British rule in Ireland uh, for the celebration of the Eucharist and this was such a joyful occasion and to me what really struck me was my goodness here are Irish Catholic Americans who are prouder of their Irish heritage and prouder of their Catholicism than many Irish Catholics are and I think that that's something for us to reflect on because the joy that they brought there and of course the natural follow-on from the mass was the the parade then with the famous University of Notre Dame marching band out to the stadium so it was a wonderful celebration and there was a flyover as well wasn't there? there was a flyover over from the, the U.S. Navy. In fact, the U.S. Navy brought a warship into Dublin port uh, for the occasion, uh, 600 Marines, 300 members of the U.S. Navy. So, I mean, it really, really put Dublin on the map. And I mean, if we want to be kind of crude about it and talk about Mammon, the city authorities predicted it brought in about 150 million euro to Dublin city centre over that weekend. So uh, it was an extraordinary occasion and an extraordinary celebration of, of Irishness and, and Catholicism because I interviewed Father Jenkins, and one of the things that he said to me was, they are so proud in Notre Dame of their Irish heritage. They're proud that when the university started, that the first students were Irish immigrants who had fled the famine, people who had arrived in America with nothing except their Catholic faith, and they built this university that is now one of the most prestigious universities in the United States. And as he reminded me, 15 of the 17 presidents of Notre Dame, including himself, have been of Irish heritage. Okay, and and what had he any... 
words of wisdom or um, encouragement for, I suppose, what is something of a beleaguered church in Ireland? Very much so. And uh, we know the University of Notre Dame has a number of projects in in Ireland, of course. They have the O'Connell House in Dublin City Centre. They have a partnership with Kylemore Abbey in uh, Galway. And of course, they have the Notre Dame Centre, the Newman Centre for uh, Faith and Reason at St. Stephen's Green. So... Father Jenkins very much sees that as part of the university's commitment to try to create a space for dialogue in the church in Ireland, also to try to create somewhere where there can be beautiful liturgy and uh, really, really uh, on-message preaching. So he very much sees that as a commitment of the university because he believes that they owe so much to Ireland and to Irish Catholicism that went to America at a very beleaguered time for Irish Catholicism as well. I mean, very few of those immigrants who uh, left Ireland at that time if things had been better, would have left Ireland. Uh, they left because there was no future. No Catholics, for them here. no Irish was often a sign in New York. Uh, very much days, so. Yeah. And th- this is why, and I think this is why things like the University of Notre Dame are something to be so proud of because these communities learned to be extremely self reliant because actually they came to the new world, they came to the new country, and they were willing to work hard. They really were willing to bust their backs working. Uh, and they were treated as second, third class citizens. Mm-hmm. So actually, this created an Irish Catholic. Catholic identity that's strong in the US until today and in some ways defines itself uh, against everybody else, not in a kind of competitive way, but just in a, in a self-reliant kind of way. And all young people as well. I think that's really, you know, we were talking about World Youth Day here, you know, in the a previous podcast. Um, I think that's the, the real takeaway. You know, they're able to get thousands and thousands of young people to go to university to be part of a Catholic identity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's self-consciously Catholic. I mean, it's not something that happens by accident. I mean, if you go to the University of Notre Dame, the center point of the campus there is the Basilica there. All life in the university revolves around that Basilica. What seems like a small thing, uh, but it's a hugely important thing to Notre Dame as well. Every single room on campus has a crucifix uh, in the room. There's a very, very strong emphasis on reminding everyone that this is a Catholic institution, not in a sectarian or exclusive way, because the majority of students in Notre Dame are not Catholic, but they value that Catholic ethos and the commitment of the Holy Cross order there to to Catholic education. Well, as you know, um, we we Irish always find Americans larger than life, and and in some ways they are. And speaking of larger than life Americans, um, we had um, Cardinal Archbishop of New York, Cardinal Dolan over, he was in Armagh, I believe, um, a larger-than-life character. I oh, I mean, the term larger-than-life could have been coined for someone like Cardinal yeah. Dolan. I mean, he's a lot of personality. As soon as he comes into uh, a room, he dominates the entire room. Uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Armagh, 150 years old. The Cardinal came into the cathedral, a uh, packed congregation, and he dominated the entire cathedral. Uh, that's the kind of uh, personality that he has. He was celebrating the uh, 150th anniversary of the cathedral quite precisely because the cathedral Cathedral in New York as well on Fifth Avenue that he presides over is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And that was built by uh, a Tyrone man, Archbishop Hughes, who was the first Archbishop of New York, who, who left Tyrone uh, as a very young man and, uh, and, and, and went there and became a priest working with the, uh, the Irish immigrant community. And it's something very interesting when Archbishop Hughes, and I think there's a lesson in this for church leaders today, when Archbishop Hughes decided that he was going to build St. Patrick's
Catholics Cathedral. He identified 10 wealthy Catholic families in New York, and he decided these are wealthy Irish Catholic families who have really made it. These are the people who are going to build my cathedral. Every single one of them in turn refused to give him a donation for the cathedral. They all turned him down. And that's when he realized when he had the insight, he said, no, no, this cathedral is going to be built on the half pennies of the poor. Like and all the churches in Ireland. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that is yeah. exactly what happened. And the same happened in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Armagh 150 years ago. A lot of poor people and poor immigrants, they sent the money home because they thought, my goodness, how can it be that the city of St. Patrick does not have a Catholic cathedral? And you know what's really interesting when they decided they were going to build the cathedral when they bought the site there? They didn't set about building the cathedral first. The first thing they did was they started uh, the graveyard and they wanted to create that sense of association with place because Irish people have a great tradition of visiting our dead and going to graveyards and uh, knowing that that was the the final resting place of their relatives and friends made it the very, very natural place then for the cathedral to be erected. I hope they put up 10 gargoyles on St. Patrick's <laughs> for the 10 families just to remind them forever <laughs> of their meanness. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and did Dolan have any like words for, you know, um, Cardinal Dolan have words for um, for 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 ordinary Catholics because he, he knows the situation. I did. I did see something, I think, in the Irish Catholic uh, that he, you know, he kind of said, keep on keeping on, you know, chin up. Yeah, of, very, very much so. And I think this is probably what the outsider perspective is really, really good for, because sometimes we get uh, we take things for granted. We take our own history for granted. We get a bit uh, blasé about our history. I was talking to Cardinal Dole and it was so obvious to me that he was moved by the visit to Ireland. And one of the most moving experiences for him was celebrating mass at a penal era mass rock, thinking of the people who risked absolutely everything for their devotion to the Catholic faith at a time when it was forbidden and a time when uh, priests were being hunted down, lay people were being hunted down. Uh, we now take the religious freedom we have in this country for granted. And as the Cardinal said, we take it so much for granted. Many, many Catholics don't go to church anymore, even if they haven't particularly opted out of uh, the church per se. They just, they just don't go to mass in the same way. So I would say his message overall to Irish Catholics was, was keep your chin up, be proud of the heritage that has gone before you be proud of the people who sacrificed everything so that you could be Catholic uh, today. And uh, I, I think that was a message that resonated very well because sometimes, and you know, God knows all the troubles that the church has been through here and all of the scandals and how disheartening everything can be and the shortage of vocations and all of these things. But we are built on, on, on a hugely great heritage, so much so that uh, the English-speaking world owes its Catholicism largely to this small island on uh, the edge of Western Europe. And sometimes we don't, we don't appreciate that enough. So I'd say that was the Cardinal's overall message. Just appreciate the heritage that's there. Appreciate what Ireland gave to the world. And if Ireland was able to renew the entire world after the Dark Ages, surely Ireland can renew itself now. It was a great shot in the arm for um, Archbishop Eamon Martin. And I saw a picture of him uh, coming coming out at the end of it. And he literally looked like he could burst with joy. Like he just, you know, and good for him because it's a real shot in the arm for Armagh, isn't it? No, it is. And, you know, particularly for bishops. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're hard on bishops and, uh, you know, rightly so on many occasions. But, you know, when you wake up every morning as a bishop and uh, you come into your desk, it's problem after problem. It's priest retiring. It's priest getting sick. It's uh, pr a priest dying. It's trying to fill an empty parish, and everyone's saying, "If only the bishops would do more." That's right. X, we all had a dollar Z. for every time we said that. 
So, I mean, this has led the wags among the clergy to say now, nowadays anyone who wants to be a bishop deserves it. And, you know, okay, that's amusing at one level, but at the same time, I think it tells us the truth just about how difficult well, it might be a nice that job is. For, for Eamon Martin now as he's thinking about the Synod and, you know, I'm not sure it's not the only thing he's thinking about, but he's obviously thinking about renewal in the church in Ireland generally. So yeah. maybe, you know, things like that are good. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, um, just while we're on the subject of Uncle Sam, uh, our, uh, we colloquially refer to the Pope sometimes with respect as Uncle Frank. And we've had a kind of a situation this week with Uncle Frank and Uncle Sam. Uh, can you explain a bit about that, the back and forth, Michael, between the Pope and American conservatives? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Pope Francis, I think it's fair to say, has had uh, a difficult relationship with the United States uh, ever since his election. Quite strangely for someone from the part of the world where he's from in Argentina, he actually was never in the United States uh, as, 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 a, as a young person uh, or as an older person. He was never there until he became Pope. And to me, it was very interesting when he did visit the United States on the flight on the way home. He does these press conferences on the flight, as we know. And in the flight on the way home, the first thing he was asked by a CNN journalist was what surprised him most about America. And he spontaneously said, I was surprised how nice everyone was. Now, wow. anyone who's been to America knows that Americans are are, are very nice. So I, I, I wonder what kind of impression uh, Pope Francis had before going to the United States. Now, we know in Latin America, where he is from, uh, U.S. foreign policy has not always been benevolent towards the people of, uh, of Latin America. I think it was Churchill who said you can always trust the Americans to do the right thing after they've done everything else first. And uh, I think the Pope probably carries some of that. There's also the fact that Catholicism, I think we have to say in America, at least certain strands of it, has been very much associated with a type of uh, neoliberalism, a type of kind of drip down uh, capitalism, neoconservatism, even in terms of some of the prominent Catholics who supported the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq. So that has been quite a, a quite a problem there, the politicization of American Catholicism for a while. I think that's something the Pope frets about a lot. I think what you're seeing in the United States, and I think probably social media has made this worse. Now, we all know the way their party system works politically in terms of two parties. It's a very binary decision. You're either a Democrat or you're a Republican. And unfortunately, the Catholic Church seems to be splintering into that as well. And some of the opposition to, to Pope Francis that we see among among lay Catholics, among some bishops as well, is quite frankly extraordinary uh, in the United States. So I think that's where the Pope is having a lash at these, uh, he's calling them reactionary forces in the US. And I think it would be hard to describe them as anything else. And I think one of the difficulties for many of these people is that they themselves for many years indulged in a type of papalism under John Paul II, under Benedict XVI, uh, they, they they find it difficult to accept that you won't always get a Pope that pleases you and in absolutely every way. And the rest of us were way. told to shut up, put up, or if you don't like it, get out? Yeah, very much so. And so I think actually what Francis is trying to do is trying to rebalance actually the papacy in a way so that, you know, so, you know, some people will like you as Pope, some people won't like you as Pope, and that's a normal kind of thing. I mean, the Pope is a man picked generally from relative obscurity. I mean, this time from Buenos Aires to take on the governance of a church of 1.3 billion people. Uh, you can't please everyone as Pope. Uh, John Paul II didn't, Benedict XVI certainly didn't. Michael, he he was he was picked, you know, for better or for worse, but he was picked. He was picked by a, a college of cardinals because the previous pope had resigned, who who said, "I just don't have the health to deal with." But we all know 
the reason he didn't have the health to deal with was because the, the huge amount of problems that were on his desk. I was overwhelmed. He had the, the Vatican leaks as well and scandals and and uh, poor Benedict. But you I mean, know, people forget when Pope Benedict uh, resigned, his his butler, one of his closest aides, was actually in prison for stealing documents from the Pope's private study. I mean, if this was in a Dan Brown novel, you would have said it's too far fetched. Far fetched, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, and and like even in t- in terms of um, like he had a reforming agenda around just the Vatican. I think to some extent he has delivered on that. Like he he brought Cardinal Pell over, and we've seen all his trials mm. about the banks. Yeah, and we won't get into all that now. But um, but in one, I was just thinking about it yesterday. I was just thinking, God, who who would wake up in the morning and talk about wanting to be a bishop, <laughs> wanting to be a pope? Yeah, uh, and and the abuse you really want very thick skin. Um, no, but, and I think, look, the Pope has said he has very thick skin, and I think that's true. Uh, I, I think what he prefers is, he, he. I mean, he's always criticizing gossip. If you look at his morning homilies, he's always criticizing gossip. I think he actually is quite macho in that Argentinian sense, and if you have a problem with him, I think he'd prefer that you come into the room and say, hey, Holy Father, I have a problem with you for X, Y, and Z reason. And I think that you could, you could have it out with him. Uh, I, I think he's humble enough to know that he hasn't always made right decisions. Okay, Michael Kelly, as ever, humble as well. Thank you for joining us here in the Confession Box. Thanks. Thank you.